Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari and this is Great Big History Podcast. We continue our History 101 lectures with India Part 2, Hinduism and Buddhism. Now, I'm going to start right from the very beginning with a disclaimer that these, these are not deep dives into either religion. They are the basics. They are... Remember, there's only two classes for India. We get one week in the class. This is, I highly recommend you take an entire class, an entire semester to talk about these two religions, um, to get into their philosophy, to get into their beliefs, to get into their history. Uh, I can't really do it justice, so I want you to know I am not trying to insult anybody. Um, we are doing the kind of top layer of this. So Hinduism is polytheistic, but also polycentric. It doesn't have one authority or one tradition, which makes sense. We talked about the geography breaking up the culture. So it, Hinduism doesn't have one place or one set of beliefs. It doesn't have a Mount Olympus, so to, so to speak. We're all, the Indians are going to believe the exact same thing about the exact same gods, even if there are multiple gods. So it is very broken up because the subcontinent is culturally very broken up. So what binds people together are the epics, the epics like the Ramayana, which explain the human heroes the gods' interventions in order to explain the natural world, to explain war and love and masculinity and femininity, the proper roles, the proper behaviors. Samkhya Karika discusses human suffering and how to prevent it. S-A-M-K-H-Y-A, and the second word, Karika, K-A-R-I-K-A, is a discussion of human suffering and how to prevent it. That's going to be a big deal when we get to Buddhism. So we got the Ramayanas. We got the Karika. And then we have the Yogas, which I put in because it's the word that you're going to know, right? You're like, oh, I do yoga. And the idea of the yoga is this experimental mysticism, this meditation, this control of yourself, of your breathing. Through calm and contemplation, one perceives the self. So it's, it's control over one's physical body. But not the Greek way, which would be a philosophical concept where you, where you know thyself, but in a physical way. You control your breathing, you control your feelings, you control what your body moves. So through calm and contemplation. That brings us to samsara, the transmigration of the soul. Now, we talked about the caste system needs a way for people to move up in it. And samsara is that way. Your soul returns to the earth, but this is not reincarnation. Reincarnation is where you come back as you with all of your memories, all of your knowledge, you are you. I come back, reincarnation is I come back as Dr. Christopher Gennari with all of my experiences intact. 
That's not this. This is your soul returns, but with nothing. And you do the journey again until you have completed your journey. And you do it again and again and again and again. Now, you may go, well, that doesn't make any sense. And yet it's totally bound within the rule of thermodynamics, the first rule of thermodynamics, that energy is not created nor destroyed. It's just repurposed. And so if your soul is energy, which India believes, and so does the Greeks, right? We, we even talked about that with Aristotelian philosophy, right? Socratic philosophy, we actually use the example from Socrates, right? That the soul is separate from the body. Well, when you die, your body dies, but where does your soul go? Well, Hinduism says it returns into the universe, eventually to return to a body. So the question then becomes, which body? And that's where karma comes in. So you know your soul is coming back to do the journey again. Now, the advantage of this is you come back. The advantage of this is you get to do the journey again. You get to live again. The disadvantage is, is you bring none of your experiences. You bring none of your knowledge. You have to do it from scratch. And you get tired by doing the journey over and over and over and over and over again for an eternity or near an eternity for until your journey is complete, your soul does get tired. It can get tired like the Anne Rice vampires who are a thousand years old and exhausted. That's why the uh, Twilight vampires make no sense. Like, think about it. You are 500 years old. You've been in high school over and over and over again for 100 years. Did you want to do high school over again at all? Much less 100 years of high school over every year? I mean, come on. That's exhausting. Would you want to be a teenager forever? That's exhausting. Exhausting. So I like the Anne Rice vampires who are like, I'm a thousand years old. I'm tired because here's the thing. I've known plenty of old people in my life and they all said the same thing when I was young, which was don't get old. It's exhausting. Every one of them said, I'm tired. So, and that's a hundred years. Imagine a thousand years of your soul doing that of being separate from the universe, of being separated energy from the universe. So what do you come back as? Well, that's karma. Karma is the tally of good versus bad. This is not the Buddhist version. Remember, this is Hinduism. The Buddhist version is you do something good and something good will happen to you. Karma is, it's, a, it's, it's, it's St. Peter at the gates. He has the book. The doomsday book he opens it up and says you have 102 good things you have 108 bad things sorry man can't get into heaven it is simply a listing of all the good things you did versus all the bad things you did and if you have more good than bad you move up you go from 
warrior level three to warrior level two. If you have a lot more good, you go from warrior level three to warrior level one. Nice. If you're bad, you move down. So what is the incentive? The incentive is for everybody to be good. The incentive is for every warrior level three to try to be the best warrior level three they can be, but also for every Indian native laborer to be the best native laborer they can be so they can come back as an Aryan. They can move up the caste system towards Nirvana. Or they could be so good, they just skip it all, hit Nirvana themselves. Boom. Which is extremely rare. It's not outside the realm of possibility, but no one like counts on it. But it can happen. So it gives an incentive to everybody to move up. It also says to everybody, you have potential. No matter where you are, you have potential. And you can always stop moving down. Because I'm a warrior level three. That means either I was an awesome warrior level four. Or I was a lazy warrior level two. Well, now I'm a warrior level three, and I can stop that. I can either keep improving, like my warrior level four version of myself, and become a warrior level two, or I can reverse it. I can stop my decline from being a warrior level two to a warrior level three, and boom, go back. So you always have control. That's the, that is the wonderful thing about samsara and karma, is you, since your journey is so long, since you're always reborn even though you don't know it, but since your soul always comes back, you always have the chance to live your best life. Which brings us to Buddhism. The Buddha is an enlightened teacher. That's really what Buddha is. And his name is Siddhartha Gautam. And he is a living on the earth around 500 B.C., about the same time as Confucius. A little bit before Socrates and Plato. Siddhartha, Gautam. Now, Siddhartha, so Siddhartha is, and this is important, it's kind of like Confucius, is a historical figure. We know about his life. Not everything about his life. There's a lot of rumors and stories, like the stories of of him becoming the Buddha, for example. But we know he existed. There is more on Siddhartha as a historical person than there is on Jesus, for example. So we know he's a prince. And there's a couple of different stories. One is that he's married and has kids. I like the one where he's not, where he's a teenager. <coughs> where he's a young man. You know, he's he's Eddie Murphy in the original Coming to America. You know, he's pampered. He's Everybody he hangs out with is a prince or are the servants working for princes, which means they live a decent life. They're servants, yes, but they're in the palace. They get the decent food. They're going to get to bathe. You know, they get the better clothes because they have to show off the, the prince's wealth, you know. And I like this. I like the idea because I I know teenagers. I have 
taught teenagers for 20 years um, that he is a very good boy. He's a very good boy. And one Friday night, his parents are like, oh, who's it, Arthur? We're so tired from, you know, being princes that we're going to go to bed. You and your mother, me and my, you, me and you. Yeah, exactly. We're going to bed. Now, you can stay up to 930, you know, playing video games or watching TV or, you know, texting, whatever you're doing. But we you get it. We have an early day tomorrow. So be in bed by 930. Okay, mom. That's great, son. You're wonderful. And so the parents go to bed. It's Friday night, so what does Siddhartha do? Sneaks out. Goes to town. Goes to try to get some nookie-nookie. Goes looking for a party. And what does he find? Poverty. He finds poverty. For the first time in his life, he sees sickness and illness and poor people. And he has a question. And that question is important. And it is, why? Why do I have so much and these people have so little? What have I done? I've done nothing. Siddhartha is at least self-aware enough to know he hadn't done anything in his life. He was the son of a prince. His wealth came from his position. His wealth came from his caste. So why do I have so much when in my life I haven't done much and these people have so few, so little, and they work Look at them. Look how hard they work. So he has the question, why? Right? He could be a, a history student, right, with that question. Now, what he does next is star, bold, underline, because it is the most important part of the whole thing. What he does next is he walks the earth for knowledge. Different stories have him giving up his inheritance. Different stories also have him leaving his wife and his kids, you know, which I'm a little less keen about, you know, you know, you know, at least at least the story is Jesus's apostles leave their wife and their kids. But Jesus doesn't have a wife or kids, though. I'm also of the opinion Jesus had a wife and kids. But that's a whole nother that's a whole nother thing for a whole nother thing. Um. But there's no doubt that the apostles do. I mean, they, it's in the text. But there are several different stories, and I'm more keen on the ones that he doesn't leave his wife and kids behind, you know. And he walks the earth searching for knowledge. And this is the important part. Star this. He walks the earth searching for knowledge. Why? Why does that matter? This is, the, this is our history class in a nutshell of asking why. Because, notice, if you write your essay, you're going to love the word because. Because he is rich enough that he could have hired the best teachers in all of India. Hell, he could have brought in Greek philosophers from across the ocean if he wanted to. He had enough money. The smartest people in, e in Egypt. Zoroastrians in, in Persia. He could have brought the smartest people to him, sat them down, and asked his questions. He could have brought knowledge to him. But what would that say about knowledge? It would say knowledge is for the rich. 
Knowledge is for those who can afford it. By walking the earth, by giving up his possessions and then walking the earth, he is saying knowledge is everywhere. It's Aristotelian, though he's 100 years, 150 years before Aristotle. Don't get me wrong. But it's since we talked about Aristotle first, I want to bring that that connection. He's, he does Jesus, who's 500 years in the future for Buddha, who's walking the earth in, on his ministry. Knowledge is everywhere. It's all around you. Knowledge is all around us. It's even in my bones. Baba, Baba, Baba. Right? Knowledge is all around us, which means anybody can experience it. So even though Siddhartha, even though the even though Siddhartha is a prince, he does not have a monopoly on knowledge. Knowledge is open for everybody. And that, that is the founding principle of Buddhism. That you cannot understand the entire philosophy without understanding it is open for everybody. It is accessible. You can find knowledge everywhere. You can find enlightenment anywhere. In fact, by saying there's one place to go is to miss the point. So what, how is Buddhism built? Well, the, the Buddha, Siddhartha, will have enlightenment. He will go boom. He will be jacked in like Neo into the matrix, into the universe, and he will see the universe, how it works. The truth is out there. And he will come up with the four truths. And the first truth is pain and suffering are inescapable. So why are those people poor? Why are they sick? Why is their lives so hard? Because they are. You can't escape it. Pain and suffering are inescapable. Not just the hardship of life, but emotional loss. Like one day, if you're lucky, your mother is going to die and you are going to bury your mother. And remember, I say if you're lucky because the otherwise your mother is burying you. And there are no mothers out there who would rather that. Well, oh, there are very few mothers out there who would rather that be the situation. So you will bury your mother. Is that day going to suck? Yes. No matter what your relationship is with your mother, that day is still going to suck. Why? Because if you have a good relationship with your mother, you don't have your mother anymore. And that's sad. And you may never see her again. Notice Christianity is like, ha, 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 ha. All you have to do is wait and be good, and you might. We have a place for that. But in Buddhism, you won't ever see them again. If you have a bad relationship with your mother, it means your relationship will never be repaired. She will never be the mother you wish she was. She will never say, Oh, honey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. You were right. All those years that we didn't talk, I was stupid. I regret it. I was stubborn. And I missed out on so much. Let's hug. 
Tell me who you are. Tell me what I missed. You will never get that from them. They're dead. And so, it that day will suck. Even if you're like in the moment, like, fine. Dad's dead. And dads are more complicated, right? Because there are plenty of people who have really terrible relationships with their dad. He's still your dad. So what does that mean? It means in your heart of hearts, you're wishing he was better. If he's a shitty dad, you're like, why can't you just be better? And right up until the day your dad dies, he could be better. He could say he's sorry. He can mean it. He could change. He could give up the alcohol, the booze, the, the violence. He could give up. He could change and be like, I am sorry. And you can reject that. That's fine too. But once they're dead, you don't even have the choice. They will never be the dad, the mom. You wish they were. You wanted them to be. So pain and suffering are inescapable. It will happen to all of us. You can't avoid it. The little pains, the little sufferings, and the big pains. So then what are we supposed to do about that, man? Like, my mom is going to die. That sucks. How do I get out of bed in the morning? Like, I'm going to die. That sucks. My puppy is one day going to die. That sucks. Like, I won't get the job that I, promotion I want. I won't get the, get into the program I want. Uh, my book may not be printed by the publisher I want. There, like, there'll be like, you know, there'll be aches and pains. My knees hurt as I get older. There would be pain and suffering. My friends will disappear, whether they'll die or they'll move. So what am I supposed to do about that? That sucks. Life sucks. And the second thing is, well, why does it suck? Why does it hurt? Why, where does the pain and suffering come from? And it's caused by your attachment and your desires. It's my attachment to my friends that means it sucks when they die or they move away and I don't see them anymore. And I'm the last generation that didn't have Facebook. So like when my friends disappeared out of high school, like I never saw them again. They're gone. Like occasionally they'll pop up on Facebook. I'll be like, oh, it's like archaeology. But I didn't have Facebook. I lost a lot of relationships because there was no way you wrote a couple of letters. So you stayed in touch about six months after graduation, after this, you know, loves moved, friends moved. They went to college in a different place and you never saw them again. They met other people. They did other things. So why does it hurt? Because you're attached. Because you desire. Because you desire the relationship. Because you're attached to the person. So attachment. So my mother's going to die, right? I'm going to bury my mother one day. So I'm attached to my mother. So that sucks. You're attached to your mother. 
you have coffee and tea and you have conversations and you you have late night talks and you 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 badmouth your brothers to her and she badmouths uh she tells you about oh when they were little and you know she talks about your dad and you know and you're like oh, I don't need to know about that and but you have all these things that you share right and you're attached or you have a shitty relationship with your mom like I explained and what do I, why am I attached to? I'm attached to the desire for a better relationship. For, for a relationship where my mom treats me as an equal. Where my mom respects me as a man. Where my mom looks at me and says, you are 40 years old. You are an adult. You are married and have kids and have a puppy and do have a house. And you are successful. And I admire that. Instead of what lots of parents do is, you're a 12-year-old brat and you will always be a 12-year-old brat. So you're you're attached to the desire of what you want. If I didn't have that desire for a better relationship with my mom, I wouldn't hurt when she doesn't give that to me. Or I wouldn't hurt as much when she passes away if I wasn't as attached. If my mom was just some strange woman who at Costco that I walked by, then I wouldn't care if she died. Oh, that sucks. People die all the time. There's obituaries every day. Every funeral home has people in it. I drive by them. I don't care. Why? I didn't know them. I didn't have a relationship with them. I, I don't wish them dead. I wish them Fulfillment in whatever. If they lived a long life, good. If they had great stories, I hope those stories get told. But I didn't know them. So that's that's a, I don't have an attachment, so I do not feel their pain, their suffering. And it would be selfish of me if I showed up to their family and said, oh, I'm so sorry you lost your father. And they would look at me and go, who are you? I'm like, I'm just a guy who feels for other people's loss. Like, they think you're a crazy person. So is there any way out of this? I, I have attachment. Do you not want to be attached to your mom or your dad? Like, or your kids? Like, that sucks. Like, so what's the solution to this? Remember, pain and suffering are inescapable. You are never going to avoid it. But can you minimize it? Yes. Knowing this, see, the thing about people is you can understand this. And this is what we call um, coping mechanisms. Right? You can minimize your pain and suffering because you can know what causes it. So my mother dies. And I say, well, she lived to be 90 years. Or if you're a Christian she, or a Muslim, you're, she's in heaven. right? She's living a better life. Or if she was sick, she's no longer in pain, right? She has peace, right? We, there's all kinds of coping mechanisms that you can minimize that. Hey, at least I knew her for as long as I did. And I was lucky that she was my mom, right? You could say that. So you can minimize your pain and suffering. And finally, the triumph of the Eightfold Path, which I know 
The Eightfold Path is eight things, so I know it's kind of like having three wishes and your last wish being more wishes. And we won't go through all the Eightfold Path, but we'll talk about what the Eightfold Path is. It's the triumph of the Eightfold Path. And what is the Eightfold Path? It's rightness, not righteousness, not religion, but rightness. It is a personal path, and it has these aspects, the right motivation, the right speech, the right action, the right effort. It's in everything you do, there is the right thing to do. And those of you who are Christians know this. This is kind of there is a lot of overlap between Christianity, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism. There's a lot, and the Eightfold Path is 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 the golden rule, man. Treat others as you want to be treated. But what's important about this is it's personal, it's individual, it's your Eightfold Path. For those of you or who are married, you, you'll know this story. But for those of you who, who are still not married yet, who have had relationships, um, many of you will date somebody who you cared about. You had a long-term relationship with. You know, you were together a year, two years, maybe more. Remember, this is not marriage. But, you know, things didn't work out and you broke up. And you'll be like, oh, that sucks. Um, but you know what? It was okay that we broke up. I didn't like that person very much. You know? In the end, they weren't the right person for me, right? Their voice drove me nuts. If I had to read another text from them, I might throw my phone into the wall. You know? Those of you who have had relationships that started well and then don't end so well, you know what I'm talking about. But what's going to happen to that person? They're going to go through life, and what's going to happen? Within 10 years or so, given the averages, they're going to meet somebody, they're going to date somebody, and they're going to marry that person. They are going to marry somebody who is going to look at them and say, you are the greatest person in the whole wide world. You are so great. I want to spend every day of my life with you. And you are so great. I want to make a little version of you that runs around for the next hundred years because the world needs more of you in it. Now, those of you who have been at weddings also know this, that you, the old relationship, is the villain of someone else's wedding. Why? Why do I say that? Because the best man gets up and says, well, Doug, Doug used to date lots of people until he met Marsha. And Marsha, we love. She's the right person for him. If he had married somebody else, it would have been terrible. But Marsha, it's great. Hear, hear. You have all these speeches. The, the mother of the bride gets up and goes, Oh, Doug, we're so glad Doug came into our lives. Well, where was he before? 
he was dating you and driving you insane. But what if you had married Doug? If you had married Doug, you'd be ruining that wedding in the future by taking Doug away from all of these people. You are the villain in at someone else's wedding because if you had stuck around, that wedding would never have happened. Think about that. So what does Buddhism say? Buddhism says you weren't meant to be together. It's okay. Your paths, your eightfold paths came together for a little while and then they separated and that's okay. You will find your right path and your right path is yours, not someone else's. And Doug, Doug is off on his right path and he is marrying Marsha and he thinks Marsha is way better than you. Remember, every conversation they will ever have about exes is, well, you're way better than my ex. Even when they say, well, my ex was a nice person, but you, you, Marsha, way better. And Marsha's like, oh, you are the greatest person in the whole wide world. Just wait till we make Doug Jr. I don't even want to name that version of you something else. I want everyone to know it's a second Doug. And that's okay. Because your path is different from his path and his wife's path. They're all different paths. To what? To happiness. To personal fulfillment. Now, I don't mean happiness as like, hee hee, ha ha, hee hee, I laugh. No, like when you ask, are you happy? No, it's personal fulfillment that your soul is like on the right path. It's your soul is where it's supposed to be. Why were you two fighting all the time? Because you weren't supposed to be where you were. That's why. Now, I'm not going to say relationships are easy. Buddhism doesn't believe relationships are easy. But you were attached to something. You were with somebody way longer. Have any of you been in a relationship way longer than you should have been and knew it? Like, you knew this relationship was over and you just hadn't told the person yet? You were hoping, like, they might move to Massachusetts or, or Wyoming and become a cowboy? Like, you were hoping they would just, like, stop answering the phone? Like, how many people have you ghosted? But here's a better question. How many people do you wish would just go, would ghost you, would just go away? Like, you've had those relationships, and they kept going. And you still went out with them, and you still went to weddings with them. Right? And you're like, I hate you. I don't ever want to listen to you tell a story about the time you and your brother went fishing back in Key West. I don't care. Oh. Yes, it ended with you hooking your own underwear and giving yourself a wedgie. Yes, I know. That's not a good story for you, honey. And you still went out with this person. Why? For year, for like months or years. Why? Because you were attached to them. It was better than being alone, maybe. You liked having them around. It was someone to do something with. They weren't terrible. They just weren't great. Happiness, though, is personal fulfillment. Buddhism is based on happiness. 
your personal fulfillment is your number one value, which is why Buddhism spreads, which is why Buddhism is so popular, way more popular than Confucianism. It's Buddhism. That's the popular one. Why? Because it's about fulfillment, personal fulfillment. So that's an easy thing to sell, to convert people to, to explain to people. We want you to have less suffering and more happiness. Like, hell, man, who doesn't want that? That's that's, That's therapy. That's psychology. And a lot of mindfulness, notice on the Eightfold Path, if you're watching the video, there's mindfulness in there. Much of mindfulness is simply Buddhism. It's simply secular Buddhism. That's all it is. Being in touch with your body. Finding personal fulfillment. Controlling what you can control and giving up what you can't control. That's all Buddhism. So, in our next lecture, we will do the Mauryan Empire. We will do politics. So that's Hinduism. That's samsara. That's karma. And that's Buddhism, the Four Truths, and the Eightfold Path. And it's a lot of trauma for you having to remember your old boyfriends and girlfriends and um, knowing that at their wedding you were the villain. But you could take pleasure in that because um, that means you were important. Right or wrong, you were you're important. You know, so they couldn't have had that wedding with you. So think about that, you know. So be careful out there. Be safe. And um, it will be okay. That's what Buddhism says. Bye.